Hello and welcome to The Canon, the show where every single week we get together and debate, argue, and sometimes harmoniously agree about which movies belong in the canon of all-time greats to live on forever. I am, as always, your host, Devin Faraci, and joining me, as always, is your co-host, Amy Nicholson. Uh, we have an exciting guest in the studio today, Amy, but before we bring him on, we have important business to take care of from last week, our uh, Linklater episode, uh, Slacker, uh, in celebration of the release of the new Linklater film, Everybody Wants Some. A movie uh, that has very good high-waisted pants. <laughs> does. Uh, uh, how did uh, the listeners at home feel about Slacker? Uh, the listeners at home were very enthusiastic about voting yes for Slacker, so welcome to the canon, Slacker. All right, so that's last week. That's all business. Let's move on into the future. Uh, and uh, joining us in the studio today, we have a really special guest. This is so exciting. I have known him on the internet for a long time, but we have never actually met in person. Uh, it is Brian Cogman, writer and producer on Game of Thrones. Hello. Hi, Brian. Hi. Thank you for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. I'm I'm thrilled to be here. This I'm actually very I'm very nervous. This is the most nervous I've been in a very long time. <laughs> this is my favorite podcast. So wow. Is it is exciting. it Devin's rampant masculinity that's making you nervous? You, you know, it's a mixture. It's a mixture of of, of you know of expectations being you know, met and, and so as a well, as that a, makes me nervous that our expectations might not meet yours. Oh well, that's true. As a regular yeah. listener, uh, which house do you think Amy and I each belong in in Westeros? Oh. Oh, that's interesting. You're an, you're, you're an expert, so. Wow. You're an expert on both of you those two things. You put me on things. the spot there. <laughs> that's a loaded question. I know. That's what's so exciting about it. Um, I think she's a fray. <laughs> well, that's just mean. <laughs> I mean, I mean she's, got the, she's got the Lannister blonde thing going. So that's, you know, the most superficial, you know. I like Lannister blonde. I don't think she's I cunning think... enough. I'm getting a real, actually, Robert Cersei thing here. Robert Baratheon, I'm going to guy. So, also you know, will go out I mean, while hunting hogs. Well I'm, I'm, Robert, it's but. exactly. I'll, I'll go out hunting boar. It's fine. I'm happy. Uh, uh, you know, he went out before all the shit went to hell anyway. So he it's really, true. He it, actually checked out at the best part. Yeah, in retrospect, he really got out <laughs> <laughs> at just the right time. That is a lot like you in your weird suicide missions. Exactly. Yeah. Just get out. Get out early, man. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, thank you for coming. We will not bother you with tremendous amounts of Game of Thrones questions. Oh, um, no, that's, that's... – uh, 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 But the thing is the movie that you brought sort of, I think, has – Connections in a lot of ways. It, yeah. do, it does in a weird way, yeah. Uh, so what did you bring? And tell us what this movie is and, and, and why you nominated it. Well, uh, I brought uh, The Adventures of Robin Hood uh, from 1938, uh, directed by William Keeley and Michael Curtiz, and starring Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland. And it's um, it's going to be a little tricky, actually. I nominated it and then realized well, I, I nominated my favorite movie from when I was six, <laughs> six years old. It's been my favorite movie for 30 years. I've probably seen it more than any piece of media. Uh, I And so uh, it's I, I it's funny. I was watching it last night and I thought I have to sort of sit this sit here and, and, and be objective. And right. Uh, but uh, I think. I think the reason I believe it belongs in the canon is uh, – well, there's a few reasons. It's, it's to me a perfectly constructed entertainment um, just for any, for any era and uh, that was just reinforced last night. Uh, and it's one that I think has directly or indirectly influenced popular entertainment uh, really until today, to the blockbusters of today. It's also a great portrait of uh, studio – System film, or right. a great, a great example, I should say, of, of, of studio uh, system films uh, from the '30s, and uh, it's you know the definitive role of one of the great uh, movie stars of, of the golden age of Hollywood, Errol Flynn, um, and uh, and I also think it's it's a great film to introduce young people to 
classic films through um, for a lot of reasons that we can get into. So that's sort of the, those sort of the broad strokes. But uh, aside from it being my favorite movie, I think it's it's got a lot of lasting impact and it's it's just a great entertainment. Can I say what what a cool six year old you must have been? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if everyone in my class would have agreed with you. At the time. <laughs> but uh, no, I was I was Robin Hood obsessed and still am to to a degree. Um, and so then I kind of became Errol Flynn obsessed, and now it's it's uh, it's always sort of dancing in my head. Was your gateway the Disney Robin Hood cartoon? Yeah. Or did you just go straight? You just mainlined? No, it was the Disney. It was the Disney cartoon, as it is for a lot of people, which I still love uh, as well. Um, and then I think my mom taped this. This is back when they showed movies from the 30s on television, right. on regular television in the afternoon. My mom taped uh, this one for me, and uh, and I fell in love uh, at first at first viewing. And uh, it's it's just uh, I guess for those of you listeners who don't know, it's the story of Robin Hood. Usually, people talk about the story of the movie yes. when they introduce it. Yes, uh, <laughs> it's Robin Hood. Uh, it's, it's about the Saxon the Saxon noble uh, Robin of Loxley who. Uh, uh, leads uh, a band of outlaws against the oppressive rule of uh, Prince John and tries to uh, keep the nation stable for the common people uh, waiting for your good King Richard to return. Uh, king Richard, who in reality was a horrible, horrible king. <laughs> uh, that was the thing I was thinking about. <laughs> Watching the movie again last night, I was thinking, you know, you could really see this as like a Game of Thrones storyline, except when Richard comes back, he's a total fucking asshole. Like that's yeah. that that's the Game of Thrones version. It was, he it, shows yes. up and it's like a monster. Which does happen in, in a way. There's actually, I mean, we're here to talk about this Robin Hood, but there's a terrific uh, film called Robin and Marion. Have you guys seen that one? Yes. In the 70s. Uh, oh, it's great. It's uh, Sean Connery and Audrey Hepburn. And it's about the sort of last days of Robin and Marion. And uh, Richard Harris plays King Richard in that as he probably really was. Right. Just a, a real, real bastard. Yeah. Wait, I mean, at least, at least you get a glimpse that, you know, King Richard was off at the Crusades. Yes. I think now we hear that and we're like, oh, 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 oh. We know he's kind of probably a religious dick zealot. Yeah, it even says in the opening crawl, like he, he's, he's, he's gone to drive the, the infidels. The infidels out of yeah. the Holy Land, yes. <laughs> Which yes. thankfully is the only really uncomfortable uh, uh, – non-PC thing to deal with, which isn't always the case in movies from the 30s. Yeah, that's really interesting is that everything else is pretty uh, on the up and up in terms of There's some fat shaming for Tuck, but... There's a lot of fat shaming. (laughs) (laughs) But he seems to be, you know... uh, He's okay with it, and he's he's real good at what he does. It's part of his brand. Exactly. You know. (laughs) Uh, uh, I'm curious what Amy thought of... Have you you seen this before? Was this your first time? I hadn't, actually. You're kidding. No, I'd never seen it, but... Oh, wow. This is one of those movies when you watch it, you realize you've been watching iterations of it your entire life. You know, you watch Absolutely. this and you're like, oh, so that's where Wesley comes from in The Princess Bride. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, check that out. There's the mustache. There's the hair. There's the whole thing. I mean, I don't know a lot about Errol Flynn as an actor. I mean, because he's fascinating. And this is like about to be peak Errol Flynn. I feel like he'd been in Hollywood, what, since like 1935? Yeah, I think this making... is his third or fourth movie maybe. Yeah. I think this is peak. He had done Captain Blood, peak, yeah. but then yeah. this is the one that really solidified him Who as, you know, the swashbuckling uh, uh you know, roguish man of action, I think. This, yeah. is, this yeah. is the one. Yeah, this was the blockbuster that sort of put him above the title. Right. Uh, he, he isn't. He actually shares the title card with four other actors here. So he was popular, but uh, this, yeah, this right. launched him into the stratosphere yeah. for sure. And I love that he was a guy who, like, lied about his childhood maybe a little bit to oh. try to, like, burnish his reputation in Hollywood. I mean, he at one point, I think he even alleged that he was related to, like, the people from, what, the HMS Bounty? Yeah, he he, he says he's a descendant of Fletcher Christian. <laughs> and I think I think his first on-screen performance is this really horrible Australian version of Mutiny on the Bounty that you can – they show clips of in this uh, this really great TCM um, documentary about, about Flynn, and, and it's horrible. But, yeah, apparently he's a descendant of uh, – 
of Fletcher Christian. Well, so he says. Uh, so he says. That's probably difficult since a lot, a lot of shit that guy died said. on an island. You know, he wanted to. Uh, uh, he wanted to name. I what I like about Errol Flynn. A lot of things like, like, like there's a lot of things like about Errol Flynn, even with the statutory rape. You know, oh, yeah. even taking that yeah. out of consideration. Which hadn't happened when this movie came out. Not True. happened yet. Yeah. But uh, that's I just like, one thing. That's, that's just the one mark one. Him. But I like that he wanted to name his autobiography In Like Me. <laughs> that's right. Uh, and I like the fact that there's a saying that people probably still hear in like Flynn mm-hmm. and maybe don't recognize where it came from. But it literally comes from this guy's uh, coxmanship. I yeah. mean, the idea this guy could just go out there and get laid uh, became a, a catchphrase that has endured long past him. <laughs> He, he himself. Uh, that's kind of amazing. Like that's like the ultimate legacy. You want a Devin catchphrase like that? I'm just saying, like in heaven, <laughs> in like, like Devin. Karachi. You know, like in yeah. heaven, like Devin. Okay, it's <laughs> yeah. pretty good. That was right off the top of your head too. <laughs> no, that, that was after a lot of years of people doing horrible rhymes with my name. Believe me, it's it's a yeah. schoolyard thing. <laughs> no, it's true. You read those stories of, of what was going on in Hollywood in that era, and it's it's crazy. Nuts. I yeah. mean, there. I mean, you had Karina Longworth on here, and she so she she's the one to talk about this sort of thing. And she but, did a great episode on Robin Hood for people who. Are yes, on, yeah, yeah, on, on Flynn. He's uh, he's and his 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 autobiography, My Wicked Wicked Ways, is such a, an amazing read because it's probably eighty percent fiction, right? <laughs> um, but it's it's as if you're sitting at a bar with him, like in Havana, and he's. Telling tall tales, and that's the book. It's phenomenal. It's it's. Uh, I almost brought that too. I brought like for the listeners at home about five uh, Errol Flynn, Robin Hood, Warner Brothers books because you I'm somebody has to one up Amy. Trying to one up Amy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't take any notes though, so it's kind of useless. But they're visual aids that for a non-visual uh, show. <laughs> uh, you also brought an autographed picture of Errol Flynn. I did. I did. My my, my wonderful wife Mandy gave me that for uh, our first Christmas together, and it's it's it hangs on my wall. So I'm I'm very serious uh, about the movie. Will we be able to see that in the uh, in the show photo? We'll make sure we get it oh, hey. in the in the shot of there the show go. photo. Um, uh, so so did you like it? You had never seen it. Of course, I like. Don't it. say I mean, of course. Oh, I've done the show enough episodes with you that I. I was so oh. nervous. I was like, what if one of them doesn't like it? What am I going to do? Wait, wait, wait. Hey, why are you talking down to me all of a sudden? Like, I'm did not. you see it? Did you see it? No, what because I knew I, I had a feeling you hadn't seen it. Yeah, I hadn't seen it. See, I was correct. I was not talking cool down to you. Now, had you seen any other Errol Flynn uh, pictures? I had. Or? Yeah, 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 and I've seen a lot of Olivia De Havilland. So oh, I think yes. also we have to talk about oh, a lot oh, in yes. the show because oh, you know, she was Flynn's like most current co-star. Oh yeah. Yeah, nine films together. Nine films Mm -hmm. together, which is insane. I think this was, what, their third or fourth? Uh, The third, yeah. They'd made Captain Blood and Charge of the Light Brigade. And and, and they made it within the course of, I think, only about five or six years before she wouldn't act. She refused to act with them again because they had a a on and again, off again. uh, She claims they never bond. Yeah, she claims they didn't go She does, depending on on the interview. There's There's another interview where she kind of says they did. I find I I think they, I think they, they must, must have, have right. There's just no way. I mean, she's still alive, and if she's listening, uh, I don't mean to, you know. <laughs> if she's listening, if she's, she's listening, getting a very nasty review on iTunes right now. <laughs> if she's listening, she's probably like, "Yeah, I hit that." That's yeah, awesome. I totally fucking yeah. hit that. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I like to think they did. I wrecked that shit, is what she's saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, she outlived him by half a century. Yeah, I mean, she's still alive today. I believe she lives in Paris uh, today. Yeah, yeah, she's 99, I think. Yeah. Possibly a hundred. Yeah. And amazing. I mean, he, like, Errol Flynn drank himself to death in the 50s. Yeah. Yeah. It's depressing. His final days are depressing. (laughs) But you look at them on screen and, like, they just have this chemistry that really comes to life. Like, this is an electric love story. I mean, Robin Hood gets turned into films, what, every 15 years or Mm -hmm. something like that here? And I don't think I've ever seen a Marion and Robin that I, like, bought as much as I buy their Marion and Robin. Yeah. Agreed. 100%. And I think what really works, too, it's funny. I, I, 
watching this movie for the thousandth time last night, it hit me for the first time that um, the arc, the character arc, is Marion's. Right. Robin arrives fully formed. And he goes out just as he walked in. Yeah. But she's the one who changes sides and decides to join the rebellion and falls in love with this guy. Yeah, yeah. and it's really the spine of the movie because otherwise it's 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 fairly episodic as the you know old Robin Hood uh, right. legends are. It was drawn mainly from Howard Pyle's book, Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, which is really just little, like, here's how Robin Hood met Little John and here's how Robin Hood met Friar Tuck. And Marion isn't even in that book. Really? Um, yeah, isn't that, isn't that crazy? She was invented later, I think, for... Um, I believe I, I believe this is right. She was invented in later years as a character when they were doing kind of uh, pageants of Robin Hood. Interesting. Um, so she's not even in that book. Uh, and yeah, it's her. It's it's her story in a lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, watching this for the first time, as Devin's really enjoying pointing out. <laughs> I just asked. I, I was I was surprised by what a nasty Marion she is at the beginning. Like mm-hmm. I'm used to kind of that soft-hearted, kind, gentle, just immediately radiant, long-haired Marion. And this Marianne's a snob. I mean, she comes right out of Mean Girls at the oh, beginning. Yeah. You know, she hates the poor. She like hates the poor. And usually, I get a little edgy when you have that female character in a film who's just like, oh, la da da, and she has her nose up in the air because yeah. she's going to wind up in a mud puddle, have like whatever the ancient medieval version of breaking a heel is uh-huh. happen to her. The comeuppance. Yeah, yeah she's going to get yeah. humiliated. But this is just a Marianne who learns to be a nicer person in a gradual, slow mm-hmm. way by seeing. True selflessness, which she hadn't seen, you can tell, based on her, like, horrible friends at the castle in a long time. Yeah, she keeps her dignity throughout, which is really something. I mean, when you think about the – excuse me. When you think about the – like, say, the Kevin Costner Robin Hood from the 90s where you've got Marion screaming and crying and, you know, uh, even even when Marion is is being taken away by the guards, she's, you know, she's – She's always composed. She's always composed. And, yeah, on the page – it's funny. De Havilland hated the role. Hated making the movie. Now, a lot of it had to do with the fact that she and Flynn were having problems at the time. Um, but she felt it was beneath her. She was a real actress. She she came hmm. to Hollywood doing Shakespeare, doing Midsummer Night's Dream uh, for, for Warner Brothers. And um, and she felt on the page that it was, as you say, she, she felt this at the time. This is just the typical, oh, the, the, the guy's going to come in and be all condescending and teach this woman how to think. And, and I suppose on the page that's true, but... She's so smart. She's so intelligent and so um, – and their chemistry is so uh, – uh, now you're going to have to edit this out because I can't think of a good word. <laughs> What's a good word? You're a writer, goddamn. I know. I know. I'm a writer. I'd have to talk. <laughs> um, but she's that's – what's so, that's what's so fantastic about it is that she, she keeps it so grounded and uh, you don't really notice the kind of – Problematic. Well, I, you know, I think it's. I think it works really well. On, I feel like on the page because I feel like she's introduced in the proper point in the story. She's in early mm-hmm. enough and presented in this way. Uh, but I feel like her change is organic. It doesn't turn into a thing like Robin Hood shows up and kisses her and she goes, "Oh wow, that's true." It's like yeah. she's there. She sees things happening. She listens to people having arguments and uh, sees different sides of things. She goes to the Merry Men's uh, uh, dinner party mm-hmm. and, and sees them in action. She hears their response when asked what to do with the money. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that her change is so organic and real, it doesn't just come by being swept off her feet, off her feet by, by, by Robin Hood, yeah. which is the cheap, shitty way and easy way to do it in a movie like this. Yeah, and it's, it's, and it's what usually is, right. is done. You're right. I should, I should have, the writer should have given more credit to the writers. <laughs> uh, Norman Riley Rain and Seton Miller. Uh, the, Look at the this. Writers. Off the top of his head. Because oh, uh, yeah, now I'm just imagining this inverse where like Robin Hood is like a Trump supporter and he like kisses Mary and he's like, don't you want to follow Trump now? And she's like, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Uh, he's he's uh, he's feeling the burn, Robin Hood, all the way. Oh yeah, he full is on feeling the burn. Yeah, he really is. Not 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 a question at all. <laughs> uh, 
uh, I love their their chemistry. I love in this movie um, the way that the film creates the sense of the Merry Men as kids playing in the forest. Yes. I love that. And I love the way that there is so much playfulness and friendliness going on. And at the same time, the movie in the back half is able to escalate stakes and create a situation of danger that does not feel like it invalidates the friendship and fun while also making you actually care and be worried about what's going to happen to these guys. I think that's masterful work. And that's almost sometimes like a a lost art in a lot of ways um, to have that tonal shift and to still maintain uh, the original tone while adding something richer and darker and and more complicated. Yeah. Because the first half of the film is pretty much all bro bonding. Mm -hmm. It's like, I'm walking through a forest. There's a log. Who's going to cross the log first? It's total boy behavior. It's like the little boy behavior. hundred percent. And then as the thing is like, you know, who's, going to fight you know who, who's the better swordsman let's find out like it's just like totally fucking around and having a good time i mean and this version specifically because we see robin as uh, a lord mm-hmm. who loses his lands and then goes for the first he, as he even as he says we are newborn in the greenwood um they're fucking kids camping out i mean that really is what it is he's a guy who is not given to living in the woods Mm-hmm. Um, and when Marion is like, like she's like when they when they had their dinner party and she's not psyched about the company, <laughs> and he's like stabbing his you know uh, his uh, dagger in, into the table as he cuts his meat and bites off a big chunk. He's he's playing. Yeah, he's making a big show of it. Right. He's yeah, being he's absolutely. being he's being a lost boy. Yeah, um, I love picturing how much fun Robin or I keep calling him Robin Hood. I mean that's how much. Well, I mean he is. He is. <laughs> I mean he is. I mean that's. That's, that's no accident. Yeah, like yeah. pretty much every scene in this movie is Errol Flynn eating a big piece of meat and laughing hysterically. Yeah. And I'm absolutely cool with that. But what's great about it though is – because yes, that is that is there. But then as, as Devin was just talking about, there will be that shift. There's that fantastic – I think the best scene in the movie in terms of uh, – it was funny watching it last night in terms of the writer and me. It's that scene in the banquet hall. At the, at the start of the film, which is yeah. actually in many ways an exposition scene. Right. It's just – it's setting the political stakes. It's – you're introducing Marion and, and the players and it's the it's scene where he comes in with the big giant stag in his back and he and Prince John are filling each other out and Prince John is making this great show of, of welcoming him. But they're – you know, and at the me- in the meantime, you're seeing that John is trying to trap him by right. summoning the different guards and closing the doors and – and it takes that wonderful shift at the end when they both just put their cards on the table and and it's completely grounded. It's 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 serious. The stakes are real. It's not playtime anymore. Right. And that is so hard to balance. Uh, and, and, and very few movies do now. Before we started, like we were talking about how I think people mistake uh, tone for they want to make all the characters the same. So our our movies are dark movies. So everyone's going to be this kind of glum, angsty, dark person. Wait, I walked <laughs> in late. Let me guess. You're talking about Batman Superman. Wow, well, I, I, I haven't seen Batman Superman. I should say to the listeners. Well, so, we're, uh, we're recording this before Batman Superman <laughs> is released. Uh, but no, that is. I think that's true. And I think that that scene, especially, I love that scene because it not just it doesn't just accomplish exposition. It is such a great character scene. I mean, we got yes. to the character of Robin in the scene before where he's standing up for the little guy in the forest. But this scene where he comes in with the stag on his back, where he comes in and says compliments of, of, of King Richard, which I think is <laughs> great. Yeah. And the way that he sits down and just goes, just goes at Prince John, mm-hmm. says so much about the 
the charming recklessness of this guy. Uh, there is no filter. There is no you know he, he's he's not stupid. He recognizes that he's in a tremendous amount of danger, mm-hmm. uh, and he's doing it anyway. Uh, and there's just so much going on in this scene, not just exposition, but like the character stuff. Marion bouncing off of him. Um, right, him looking at Marion and saying, "What a pity her manners don't match her looks." Oh, that's yeah. great. Uh, and uh, while you speak treason fluently, <laughs> oh, that's so great. <laughs> and then and, you know the other side characters, their reactions and the way they are interacting with this mm-hmm. with this particular interaction also speaks so many volumes. Of about them, uh, it's it's perfect writing in that way. You Agreed. have a scene that you have to get a lot, you have to get a lot of shit across, and you do it in a way that feels fun and light, that feels uh, uh, exciting, that, that that leads to a terrific action sequence. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a perfect way to do that. It yeah. is, and there's just so many little physical bits in the direction I like a lot. Like he doesn't just come in with the stag on his shoulders; he uses the antlers to push people out of the yeah. way. Yeah, I love, yeah. I love that too. <laughs> and when he's sitting at the banquet, or when he's sitting at the small table between the two lords, and he's like. He's make, he's mocking this ransom that they're demanding. You just see the two men on both sides of him get up and kind of ease mm-hmm. away because right. they know what's coming. And he rocks in the chair. He sticks his leg up and kind of puts his foot on the edge of the that's table. That's so and kind good. Of ro- that like, wonderful physical stuff that he does. It's really incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's maybe one of my favorite scenes. Yeah, in in the whole movie, just because it is. It is just – it's so fun and, 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 and it's it's so compact and it's so well put together. It's uh, But also that's a great scene uh, for one of my favorite things about this whole film to just look at how everybody's dressed mm. because it's this banquet scene and it is – the costuming and this whole movie is gorgeous. But especially these banquet scenes where the characters are like kind of like – Gussied up a little bit extra. Yeah, fucking unreal costume. Yeah, that movie. that red and I've always loved that red and gold um, outfit that uh, that Sir Guy has. Yeah, and it's so great. And there's and it opens with that fantastic. Uh, this is this part of the film was shot by Curtiz. William Cayley was actually fired midway through production, <laughs> so he directed. About most of the uh, Sherwood Forest exterior scenes, and then Curtiz did almost all of the interiors and did a few reshoots as well. And it's got that great Michael Curtiz shot that opens where it kind of pans all the way over, ending on the dogs gnawing on the on the bones. Just wonderful pageantry, and um, and yeah, they they fired Keeley because uh, they thought that the uh, that there wasn't enough weight happening with the story. Um, in the in the outdoor scenes, it was a little too jolly, and they wanted to kind of edge up um, the the interior sequence. That's actually so amazing it balances because it balances really well. Absolutely. Whenever you're outside, everything is much lighter. It, you really mm-hmm. do feel it. Um, I love now knowing that Curtiz did the the uh, interior stuff. Uh, I love the opening introduction of, of Prince John, where he knocks over the oh, wine, and the right. camera just pans down to it uh, puddling like blood. It's yeah. so good. And they look at each other. Curtiz, uh, uh, Claude Rains, and Basil Rathbone sort of look at each other like, "Oh, look! It, <laughs> it looks like blood." Yeah. And they look at it together. <laughs> it's like you, it's like you fuckers. You're <laughs> so good. And, and and that's I love the way the villains are handled. Villains are hard. I've I've written a few movies where the villains you think they're going to be the easiest. They're actually the hardest because it's so easy as a writer to just go for. Uh, they're crazy. Right. And that's what most, I think, frankly, most people do with their villains, that they're crazy. And no one's crazy in this movie. Right. There's no, or sometimes a, a villain will start off not crazy and then sort of slightly Escalate go as crazy by the end. The hero is getting the best of him and it makes him nuts. Yeah, yeah. right, which is really lazy. <laughs> and uh, and what's great about this is they, they've all got very specific points of view. Uh, you know, uh, and 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 Basil Basil Rathbone just just loathes Saxons and loathes Robin and is jealous. But then you've got uh, the political animal in Prince John, uh, the buffoon in uh, Melville Cooper as the sheriff, and it's it's just it's wonderful. I love those little scenes where the villains are sort of plotting what what they what they have to do. I like this vision of Prince John. I liked him as um, a guy who's kind of like he's so 
above it all that he's just willing to like fuck around Robin Hood a little yeah. bit. Yeah, I like that. I think that's fun. Yeah, uh, you know, he's not like you know because another any other any other royalty in a movie like this where he the shit that Robin Hood says in that scene in that banquet scene it's like off with his head immediately right. like, I like that Prince John plays with it I think it's really fun um, it, it speaks to the fun aspect mm-hmm. of the whole thing the original version of that scene uh, he, he's supposed to he was going to enter with a, the, a dead corpse of a Saxon peasant on his back Oof, that is which, very which is very Game of Thrones <laughs> I'm glad they didn't do that don't think we'd be talking about that well we'd never, obviously never made it but that was the original version of the wow. scene isn't that amazing that's really yeah. dark and then before that the scene was going to be a joust it was going to open with a huge jousting sequence where Robin, as a Saxon lord who hadn't been outlawed yet, was jousting for the Saxons, and he was going to have a big joust with Sir Guy, and all this was going to come out in the scene, but they went over budget, and so they, they, they cut it. And again, I think I think for the best, rightly, I think rightly. Yeah. Uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, let's talk some more about Robin Hood. I want to talk about um, people getting shot with arrows. Yeah. And we are back from break. Uh, uh, you saw behind the scenes how the uh, advertising works on this show. Yeah. It's that was direction. exciting. <laughs> I thought we were actually going to take a break and, and you know. <laughs> no. Uh, one of my favorite things about this movie, um, I think the action is terrific. It's amazing. It is really uh, important in the history of cinema, I think. But more than that, um, everybody who gets shot with an arrow in this movie actually got shot with an arrow. Yep. Uh, which I think is probably the coolest thing ever. They were paid 150 bucks. To get shot with an arrow. <laughs> and, and to be warned, they had like what, wood underneath their costume? Yeah, I think they had some kind of uh, like a so it would wood stick thing. In. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, that's the, you, I think they, what they used to do and what they did often was they would like rewind a shot or something or like they, they would start with the arrow in and then they would yank it out. They would do that. Something. They'd also have arrows on wires yeah. that would just kind of come like zo- zooming down. Right. Um, and then you like catch it or whatever. But like this is, they had a champion archer yeah. literally fucking shooting arrows at dudes. Yeah, I, I believe mean, his name was Howard Hill and he stayed friends with Flynn the rest of the rest of his life. Would you ever be allowed to get away with that on a set today? No. I can't imagine, right? No. There's no way. No. I mean, especially like in a world of CGI where like it's just... Yeah, that's the thing. You just... You just uh, you, you... But the difference though... Is that watching this movie and watching a dude walk through a door and catch an arrow in the chest and quite clearly catch an arrow in the chest? Yeah. Man, that feels awesome. different. Yeah, and 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 yeah, the fight scenes feel real because it, it's it, you compare it to the musicals of the day where where it's big wide establishers and they're not editing the shit right. out of it; they are executing those moves. There's just a right. hundred dudes in that final scene <gasps> just going. Yeah. yeah, you're seeing Errol Flynn like jump up and down a staircase. You're yeah. like watching his knees give a little bit when he like lands off. You know, you're watching. I, I like how there are fights where he can leap over a table in a single bound. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, how does he do that? Yeah. You know, it's, it's in those simple stunts that he pulls off that I, I find most impressive. Because I have to admit, and this might make me sound kind of... Uh, not cool in a violent sense. I don't quite get watching most sword fighting on, in movies because it always just looks like they're deliberately clashing swords in the air. <laughs> I don't know what to look for right. to appreciate a sword fight. It's like, why are they? Are they actually trying to hit each other? Or are yeah. they meeting? Yeah, it never looks like they're actually trying to hit each other. But they, but they do in this one. Yeah, they w- do in this one. Which is why I feel like I've always had this idea that swords aren't dangerous in my head because they never look dangerous in movies. They don't even look that sharp. Because all they do is, you know. Hit, yes, it's like hit each other with them. <laughs> exactly. They're aiming, you know, they're aiming about a foot in front of everyone's face. Right. Yeah, but these sword fights are they're good looking, but they're just kind of rough enough around the edges, just slightly yeah. sloppy in the elbows because they're doing it for real. That Absolutely. it looks it looks good. There's a move that Flynn does in that first banquet scene, um, when the guards are first coming at him, he has 
he's gone backwards over his chair and then he pops up, uses mm-hmm. the chair as a shield, and then the guards come at him. He does this thing with the sword where he kind of like spins yeah, it in the air. He spins it around like a lasso. I really fucking love that. Yeah. It is so cool. It's like clearly just a an intimidation move. Yeah. It has no value at all in a battle, but it looks cool. And I can imagine walking up to a dude doing that, and I would be like, oh, this is weird. And I'm nervous about this sword flying all over the place right now. It's really neat. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, and I have to, and I'm sure that, that that sword fight has influenced, you know, countless. Uh, uh, action sequences and sword fights since. It certainly, oh, it's, yeah. certainly does when I write one. I mean, I wrote one uh, uh, in uh, Game of Thrones uh, for season three, uh, The Fight in the Cave. And, uh, you know, it was based on a scene from one of the books, but in terms of, of um, conveying the action on the page for the director and for the fight choreographer, I absolutely watched the the, the Gisbert and uh, Robin it's, fight. At the how do you movie. translate that into the page when you write it down? I mean, uh, personally, just just I do it in little little short little paragraphs and and try to at least when I'm writing try to um, attach it to some kind of an emotion that the character is sort of feeling or or uh, try to make it clear who has the upper hand and why and attach that to some kind of emotion. That's just that's just my way in. I'm sure everybody does it differently, um, but that's that's I think that's why the the fights in this are so good. You you. You have a real sense of who's on top and who's on bottom in terms right. of you know where they are and 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 you it escalates very naturally and it never feels choreographed. Right. Uh, there's a reason why the fights in this and in Captain Blood are mm-hmm. sort of the fights that people have been chasing for 80 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think anytime somebody does a modern fight scene in some way, they are on some level chasing these these two movies. Absolutely. I mean, uh, and very few people get to it for that exact reason, which is that it doesn't feel fake. Um, it feels present. But even more than that, yeah, it feels like a conversation is happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the thing I think a lot of fight scenes are missing is that it feels like it's just like, well, these guys are here. They're going to hit or shoot or you know stab at each other and then it'll be the end of it. In this, especially in that final guy fight, yeah. it, it's this fight is a personal thing that's going back and forth. There are emotions that are not being said that are being shown and the way that they're fighting uh, really gets that across. It's yeah. really beautiful. And we have to talk a little bit too about just how like the camera work and the editing I feel like really add to that. I mean that last fight scene has that gorgeous scene where the sword fight where the sword fight moves around this column and then you get to see the, oh, the shadows. shadows projected oh, on so it. good. And then oh, you get to the see best. them come back out and there are there are the humans again. Oh, it's, it's gorgeous. Great. It's so or good. The editing in the forest ambush scene where you just get the sense oh, of energy of all of the people running towards the middle, running towards right. the road, mm-hmm. coming from directions in, in all corners. And yeah, and you get a real sense of the strategy too. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. and and it really takes its time. That scene, and 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 also the archery tournament scene, uh, and and the final fight. They they take a long time to kind of build uh, where everyone is, the geography of it, and kind of builds up the suspense. Like that procession where the where the merry men um, disguises the monks are coming into the castle. That's a long right. procession, and you're kind of waiting for something to happen. So then, when it all does explode, it's it's fantastic. I mean, the pacing is so. Perfectly, you know. Uh, yeah, I love the archery competition for that reason. Is that uh, in a different movie that would be over in half the time? Yep. But they keep moving it. They keep sort of one upping each other, and then Robin does the. This is, you know, can you put it? Can we put the target at a, a, at a reasonable distance for a man for to, hit to shoot it? at? Yeah. To shoot at? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, so this, the, you know, the way that's already escalating, and then when it escalates mm-hmm. to that, oh, the build of it is incredible. The, the willingness to take that time. I was thinking about this while watching the movie last night, which is that um, 
old films, especially of this era, um, have a real willingness to get across character and concepts in such big sweeping ways and immediate ways that they are able to take time doing other things that a lot of modern films don't take time That's so doing. True. That's so true. You know what yeah. I mean? Like we really get a lot of shit out of the way. We know who people are. We understand where they're coming from very clearly and they do it like in kind of broad strokes. So then, then when you have the sequence, they can take a lot of time with it and create a character moment out of it as well. Absolutely. Um, they're not just going for the action. Yeah, I mean, this, this is kind of vague, and I'm thinking about it. I'm just really bouncing off your idea. But I feel like a lot of the problem with modern screenwriting is that they try to create interest in a character by making them withhold what makes them interesting. Mm. So, like, why is this person acting this way? Why is this person mad? Why is this person doing this? What hurt them? Sure. And then they tell you that, like, an hour into the movie when you don't care. You know, <laughs> yeah. you're just like, come on. And they don't trust you to care about the character from the get-go. You know, they like yes. withhold and withhold and withhold and withhold. Yeah, literally every character's motivation is clear within the first 15 minutes of this movie. Absolutely. Exactly. It's not a question. You know every character's motivation within 15 minutes of this and movie. And what I like about that, look, I was thinking about The Hunger Games watching this movie. And I will explain that. <laughs> Archery. <laughs> Well, yes. Oh, no, actually, yeah, I didn't this even put true. the archery part together. And a, and a revolt against it. There's actually a lot of uh, parallels. Yeah, I was thinking about it specifically in the props or in, in the people's attitudes because this these are both films about people who are hungry. Mm-hmm. You know, they will not stop talking about how hungry they are in the forest in the beginning scenes of Robin Hood and they're just establishing how they're starving to death. Mm-hmm. You, know, you even have like giant Friar Tuck being like, I'm starving to death. <laughs> and um, – and they actually make that very evident throughout the film. You know, like you see how happy Errol Flynn is to eat. You have these moments where, like you mentioned, the dogs in the banquet hall. Mm-hmm. When they pan to the food the dogs are eating, you think men should be eating that. Yep. And they actually make hunger and food a part of the film in every scene. You see that need to have to eat. Yeah, Whereas the way the Prince hun- John is like putting little little grapes in his mouth and kind of – yeah, exactly. absolutely. They, yeah. Make, they make a point of it. Whereas Hunger Games is supposed to be about the same thing, people who are starving and I guess using bows and arrows to fight for this idea of having food. And whenever Katniss is surrounded by food, she doesn't care. And that has always <laughs> driven me nuts. Like she's on the train going towards the capital and she's like, oh, cakes and soups, I don't give a shit. Whereas in the book, you see her wanting to eat and hating herself for being hungry and this like human need comes out oh that's interesting you know and, yeah. and so i was thinking about how i've always been mad about that with the hunger games movies and this just nails it well fantastic in, in that banquet scene it actually becomes text because it's robin hood eating uh the thing and then he spits it, spits out, it out and it becomes the discussion of mm-hmm. don't you have an appetite for uh yeah. honest you have meat? for honest meat yeah and so it, be, it actually becomes text in that way yeah yeah and um, then you also have marion refusing to eat his food when right. she thinks mm-hmm. he's just a thief right and, and and coming back to what we were talking about with the uh with the archery tournament and and with marion the movie is so smart about using pov in the best way particularly through her you're really any scene she she's in is basically in her point of view right. and you're always clocking how she's feeling at every moment about you know what's going on and 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 it speaks to her arc that we were talking about earlier but uh i think yeah i i think it's something that's missed nowadays i think people are more worried about getting the big shot with all of the special effects and i'm going to sound like an old man here but <laughs> but it's but really it, it, it Clocking the characters' points of view. I mean, that's that's the best kind of storytelling. Right. And this right. movie just nails that. Because what works in that archery scene is that we know that she that we know that she knows that he's getting set up and that mm-hmm. he's walking right into a trap. We don't know if he knows he's walked into a trap, but we suspect he might know. Or yeah. maybe he's just such an egotist he can't resist it. I think that's what it is. I think he yeah. knows he is, but I can get out of this and then it, it Exactly. You know. But you you don't know that she knows that he knows. Right. And so she's losing her mind. <laughs> yeah. And I and can I say I think I don't think there's ever been a more beautiful woman on screen uh 
than Olivia de Havilland, specifically in that scene, <laughs> I just, and, and and specifically in the moment where she's about to give him the arrow, and and she knows he's in trouble, right? And the the wind is just kind of blowing her little veil back, and I think they shot it in Pasadena. They sure did, enough. yeah. Um, oh God, just right. I mean, it's shocking that next year she's going to play. The, the homely average woman in, in Gone she's with the Melanie, Wind. She's Melanie, I know. Like, what are you talking about? She's an extraordinary actor. I mean, she's an extraordinary actor. And it must be said, you know, she hated the movie, didn't see it for 20 years, and tells a story uh, that in, she was in Paris in 1959. She had a 10-year-old son. It was playing uh, down the street. She thought, well, I, should, I need to take him to a movie anyway. I'll go see it. And she saw it and loved it. She said, oh, my God, it's a classic. This is wonderful, and he's wonderful. And she hadn't talked to Errol Flynn in a few years, and she wrote him a letter Saying, you know, oh, I just want you to know I just saw it and it's wonderful and, and you, were, you were perfect. And, and she thought, oh, it's sentimental. I won't send it. And he was, I think, dead within a year. No. Yeah. Whoa. It kills me. That. Can you put that in Game of Thrones? That's brutal. <laughs> <laughs> that is brutal, right? Uh, oh. Yeah, no, she's amazing. Uh, you know, and he, I mean, you- he's, he's unreal. What were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say, you touched on costumes, but her costumes in this are oh, amazing. And there, there are these color combinations that don't even make sense. She's wearing like <laughs> lavender and silver and green. And you just think, oh, this is them having fun with the fact that they can do crazy technicolor processing. With this well, film. yeah, this was their first big three strip technicolor film that Warner's was making. Right. It was a huge deal. They were, they were really kind of swinging for the prestige costume drama that MGM was known for. Yeah, right? Warner Brothers at the time was mostly doing gangster movies yeah, and like yeah. sort of like low social pictures. And so this was like a big step forward. Yeah. And they are going for it. I mean, when, when King Richard comes back, all of his men have to be wearing different colored I know, those funny. Robes. They're just like, check this out. Look what we're doing. I fucking love it. You know, this is the kind of design sense that like I feel like is missing. Again, you know, I don't want to drag down a, another movie, but like watching a film like Batman Superman where everything is so dark and drab mm. and you watch this and you're like, man, you really can make the colors go. You know, I'm I'm a fan of the Marvel movies, but even there I'm like, guys, you can turn that shit up a little yeah. bit. Like, it's all right. Like, this looks great. I mean, yeah, I think realism as as a trump card for everything is, is so silly. I mean, honestly, if you're watching this, they don't have colored dyes really at this point in history to be doing all of these no, colors. No, of course not. Yeah, <laughs> they can't make these. No like, way. I don't know if anybody's yeah. ever read. There's a really interesting book on um, the evolution of. Oh, now I'm blanking on the name of the color, but it's like it's not cerulean. But there's mm-hmm. a book that's about. I'll think of it as we're talking about how this one dye got invented, and everyone was like, "Whoa, there's a new color that didn't exist minds. in nature." Yeah, right. and they freaked out, and it was like the most expensive thing. I think it was a shade of purple. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I mean, it's it, this. I mauve, mauve. Oh, there we go. Yeah, it's a whole book on the history of mauve. Wow, a whole book mm-hmm. on the history of mauve. That's yeah, but you think? I, I mean, it's amazing <laughs> to think like, oh, hey, here we have the natural world, and there's like blueberries mm-hmm. and red strawberries and the blue sky. But mauve is not really anywhere, unless I guess you like have orchids or something from. From Thailand, and then they're just like, "What is this color?" I I wasn't going to do this, but there's actually a quote. Wait, oh, we're going to have a reading. Oh, sorry, I shouldn't. And Brian Cogman with a reading from the Book well, of Flynn. And now I can't find it, so maybe I shouldn't. Uh, well, it was a. It, it's basically it's a it's a quote from the adventures, the Merry Adventures of Robin Hood by Howard Pyle, which this was drawn from, and that. But now, of course, I. Oh, here it is. Young, I found it. Oh, here we go. Okay, so this is this is a description by Howard. This is an 1883 novel, but this was what the screenwriters were going for in terms of the tone. And it's, it's wonderful. A country bearing a well-known name wherein no chill mists press upon our spirits and no rain falls but what rolls off our backs like April showers off the backs of sleek drakes where flowers bloom forever, birds are always singing, and every fellow hath a merry catch as he travels the roads and ale and beer and wine, such as muddle no wits, flow like water in a brook. 
Such as Muddle No Wits. That's awesome. <laughs> I, I love that. <laughs> but it speaks to the kind of romance and pageantry right. and, and innocence of, of the movie. Right. Which is, I mean, the thing is like the movie is technically a children's sort of movie mm-hmm. uh, because it has that innocence to it. But at the same time, it also has, I think, depth and meaning that makes it relevant for all people. Yeah. Um, this is back when Hollywood was really good at doing that at making movies mm-hmm. that were for everybody in a way that did not make them feel bland or like four quadrant tested out. Like, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, this is honestly a little violent even for a kid's movie. Oh yeah. Robin, know, Robin's a, a killing machine. He really <laughs> he yeah. a lot of Although at the end movie. of the movie, he's killing every left and right. And he has that, he has that one face off with guy and um, he's got him up against the, uh, the wall oh, yeah. and he just pins his cape. And I'm like, Robin, just, the neck, man. It's right there. Just, just finish Yeah, I this thought sh- about that too. Finish the, this shit right now. And I'd seen it a million times and I, when I watched it, I thought, oh, that's odd. He's sort of like – That's almost like, you know, I, I want to get a good fight out of you. If I run I mean, over here, we can uh... – That's the thing that that actually makes it work is that yeah. you get that sense of the character. It's the same guy who goes to the archery competition. Yeah. It's like that's real fucking stupid. Well, it's like – What if a he, dumb decision, dude. But, you know, but, it's like if I want to beat this guy, I'm going to beat him – For real. For real. I'm going to beat him one-on-one yeah. right down to the end. Because later on in the fight, then they make a big moment of this. You know, he, he kicks him his sword. He's like, right. I'm not going to you know, – I'm going to kill you in, in the heat of it. Right. Um, can we talk – oh, before we run out of time, the s- musical score it's wonderful of this movie is one of the – I think it's one of the great – it is one of the greatest scores ever written for film. And it's one of the first I, – I believe one of the first scores that really um, complements so much of the movie, of, of a movie. I mean, movies back then didn't have full scores that uh, – And they often didn't know. have scores written for the movie. They, yeah. They would bring other – they bring music in. But this feels like – especially in that final fight, oh. it feels like the music is 100 percent being written for the, the action. Yeah, it's Eric Wolfgang Korngold and, and it complements the action so beautifully. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, writing a, I'm writing a movie of uh, the remake of Sword in the Stone right now yeah. and I listen to this soundtrack the entire time while I'm writing, writing it because it's just the sweep of it and the, and the playfulness of it. Um, and like, like the movie, it shifts in tone you know, really seamlessly. Um, but he didn't want to write the score. He, he sent a memo. There's this great book I have that's all these old memos from, from Warner Brothers. Wow. I think it's out of print. This is a great book. You guys should look at it. But there's a memo where he writes from Vienna. He lived in Austria. And he said, I can't do this. I'm a serious composer. <laughs> I'm not going to write a movie for that's 90% action. I can't do it. And I won't. And then within a couple of days, he was on a plane uh, to Hollywood to, to do the score because the Nazis <laughs> wow. were closing in. And they and – they, 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 you know, confiscated his property a couple of days later. Wow. So, oh, I'm going to say it. We, we do have the Nazis to thank for this, uh, <laughs> wow. for this uh, gorgeous piece of film music. Also makes him the perfect fit to be writing a movie about, you know, oppressive forces stealing yeah. your hand. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I love this this story and the Olivia de Havilland story both say to me a thing that I try to say to people a lot, which is that the things that we complain about the movies today and the stuff that people like kind of like discount or whatever, this has always been in play. People have oh, always yeah. thought that movies were too silly or mm-hmm. uh, too childish or not not serious enough. And that's a perfect example. And then what happens is that sometimes – I mean often they, they were – If we, we mostly remember the movies from the 30s that were very good. There are a lot of oh, yeah. not very good movies from the 30s. But sometimes it really does come together in a way that is just so special to sort of just automatically write off a movie because it is fun or has 90% action whatever I think is a silly point of view mm-hmm. because some of the best movies of all time were written off that way. You originally. know, I was thinking about that actually when I was looking at the Oscars that Robin Hood won because right. it won the Oscars you give the fun movie everybody liked. It right. won like right. I think sound, editing, art direction, music, art score. Direction. Yeah. Yeah. It won all the technical Oscars. It won the Mad Max Oscars. So right. People were like, hey, good <laughs> right. job. Good job. We liked you. We, we can't pretend you're a best picture. We, we just won't. 
Yeah. Or we won't admit that you're a best picture, I mean. But we'll we'll try to give you as many awards as we can in the other th- in the other categories. It's a great example of the studio system at its best, which you know, I've always been a very I've and this is probably because I'm a writer and a producer and not a director, I've always been very uncomfortable with the whole auteur theory thing. I think it obviously applies to certain right. people, but this is a perfect example of 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 um, I hate to word, use the word machine, but the machine making doing it right, where you had two directors who had two very sen- different sensibilities, and a producer in Hal Wallace that knew how to move all the right. pieces, and some dumb luck, and and it all just came together to be a wonderful piece of art. It's that, this. You know, it's uh, Gone with the Wind. It's yeah. Wizard of Oz. These Casablanca, are all movies. Yeah. Casablanca, these are all movies that are products that show the studio system when it's working well is a pretty unbeatable way of doing yeah. things. And and you don't watch this movie and you don't feel like it's manufactured. It feels like a. It feels like its own thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I wish that a younger audience would discover this movie again now because watching this last night, I was filled with the desire to go on Tumblr and find a lot of Robin and Will Scarlet shipping. Uh, <laughs> I know. Uh, yes, Pat- Patrick Knowles as uh, Will Scarlet. <laughs> uh, Probably the goofiest performance in the movie. <laughs> he is like – Will Scarlet's amazing because Will Scarlet's like, I don't want to fight. I'm, I'm going to play music right now. I'm just going to hang out. Yeah, he complains about living, in the, living yeah, in the woods. And he's just like Robin Hood's like best pal. Yeah. And it is like – that is like prime slash fic material. Yes. Well, and, and again, more trivia. Patrick Knowles was one of – of Flynn's boys, you know, Flynn had his own version of the, the pussy, pussy posse, posse. Yeah. and uh, actually David Niven was originally supposed to play Will Scarlet, who, I mean, this would have been a much better, more interesting performance if, if it was David Niven, obviously, but he couldn't do it. David Niven was also one of his, one of his gang. And, uh, and yeah, that's, 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 that's how he got that gig. I mean, and, how crazy is it that they wanted, uh, originally Jimmy Cagney to play Robin Hood? Yeah, it was, oh. gonna, it was conceived for James Cagney. I totally get it. Like, I get it's it too, a very actually. different movie, but I totally but get it. it. Yeah. I feel like the Jimmy Cagney version of this movie is like the current version of this movie. It'd be like the darker, weirder I don't know. Jimmy, I mean, Cagney Jimmy Cagney is actually, a song and dance guy. I know he's a song and dance guy. I know he's a song and dance guy, but he has like a darkness to his face. Do you know what I mean? He's, he, I, he's well, yeah, a I great had dancer. I love him and stuff like He's uh, rougher. He, Jimmy Cagney is the guy who brings the dead sax mm-hmm. in it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know what I mean? That's the thing. Uh, but but it would have been, I think it would have been still just as great. I think it would have been the, the physicality that makes this movie really it work. It would have been earlier Warner Brothers, which is probably when they conceived it for Cagney, it would have been in that era where it was the scrappier right. gangster Busby Berkeley even the Busby Berkeley musicals while they're beautiful musicals they have this kind of scrappy yeah. edge to them and Jimmy um, Cagney was so great in those Busby oh yeah well, Footlight musicals. Parade's my other favorite movie Footlight Parade uh, is one of my favorite really? movies really? Ah! <laughs> <laughs> nice oh maybe we can do a versus no stop I'm just adding myself to your show now <laughs> hey guys why don't we do this next week um, <laughs> but, uh, I love to talk about a Busby Berkeley oh, man, Actually, you, I, I hope you guys do the, it's so hard to talk about a Busby Berkeley because most of the plot scenes are well, they're, yeah, they're, yeah, that's they're why terrible. I feel like Parade's so good. But Parade is great. Um, but yeah, I think his his Robin Hood would have been very athletic and and and. Uh, he's like shorter. Strappy. He's he's tougher. Yeah, he's and the guys in the woods thing probably would have gotten a. It would have it would have been more like those old stories where Marion's probably you know, if she's in it at all. Well, it wouldn't have been as boyish. I mean, that's I yeah. think the thing that ends up making Adventures of Robin Hood so wonderful is mm-hmm. the whole thing feels boyish. Even yeah. though Errol Flynn is a rake, and even though Errol Flynn is a womanizer, there's a boyish quality to mm-hmm. him that it feels adventures is the right. Yeah, you know, maybe it's because it's, his mustache looks like he just got it. <laughs> it's got a really, it's got a real terrible fucking chin thing going on. Uh, not a fan of this Robin Hood's facial hair. Uh, quite well, frankly. and you know, and it was it was a nod to Fairbanks because th- this was a remake. Right. I mean, Douglas Fairbanks' Robin Hood from 1922 was a massive movie, and they were actually very nervous that if they 
erred a little too far in the design of Robin Hood from what people were used to with Fairbanks that they would revolt. So they even purposefully that that famous scene where he swings in on the thing and has his hands on his that's a Fairbanks he's doing shot. Fairbanks yeah. is posed absolutely on purpose. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, so let's take one last quick break. When we come back, we'll wrap this up and decide whether or not uh, this movie that I think we're all lukewarm on uh, belongs yeah. in the canon or not. <laughs> We are back. Uh, okay, so uh, I think we all – I feel like we're all on the same page. This is 100% canon. Very exciting. Uh, what, I, I, what I want from you is I want you, Brian, to tell people like, hey, guys, watch old movies and you can uh, wind up writing for awesome TV shows. Yes. I mean I, look, look at me now. No, it's funny because I, I never – I sort of uh, fell into screenwriting by accident. I was an actor and this this all sort of uh, – you know, I won't tell the story now, but I, I never – formally trained in, in screenwriting or writing of any kind, but um, absolutely the movies that I that I grew up in that are part of my DNA are absolutely what uh, uh, helped me and influenced me today. And this movie is, is you know, in my blood. I mean, it's it's really just uh, – uh, to me, it's a perfect, a perfect entertainment. And, and I th- again, I, I keep harping on this, but I really think it's a great one to show your kids. Like when my, my daughter's four, I think when she turns about six, I'm going to show it to her. And I think it's a great way to sort of I – think, I think now there's a – sadly with this generation a short window where they're not going to want to watch these movies. Right. So I think you got to get them <laughs> while they're young. And this is a perfect one to do it with. And obviously the, you know, the, 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 the Disney movies and Wizard of Oz, there are more kind of kiddie movies that you can show them that can get them into that sort of groove of, of classic movie watching. But this one I think feels modern enough right. as well as being a classic that – that I think it'll open the door for you know for all you parents out there. With kids. I think the bright colors make a difference too. Mm-hmm. I think that yeah. kids don't want to watch a black and white picture, uh, but the oh, really absolute yeah. popping color here um, is on the verge of cartoonishness. I think that is appealing to a to a kid. Definitely. Um, I know for, as a kid watching when I would be changing the channels when I was a kid and watching the different old movies, I would always skip a black. I mean, I, I'll admit I would skip black and white to get to the Technicolor. Ones. Sure. Like, cause those, te- I love that Technicolor look. And so that's, I would watch anything in Technicolor. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, you know, goes a really long way. Uh, so Amy, do you think this belongs in the canon? I 100% think this belongs in the canon. Devin, do you think this belongs in the canon? Uh, this is a, uh, this is as, uh, my catchphrase is a slam dunk. Uh, for the canon, I would say. I think you should say a bullseye. This is a bull. This is a bullseye. So the guy, <laughs> the guy who uh, was shooting everybody with arrows, oh, yeah. is the guy who Robin Hood is competing against in the archery competition. That's right. Uh, That's right. And uh, I, I, I don't remember. So how do you? You're the expert. How did wow. they do the split arrow? Oh, I knew this, and now I can't remember. <laughs> Like, did this, this dude this shoot point. the arrow? I don't think so. It? I think there was. I think there was a special effect okay. uh, uh, component, but I don't remember exactly what it was. Because uh, it's really great, but it looks great. It looks it? really. I mean, I've heard that there are some like competing theories. Like one theory is the arrow that was in the bullseye that gets split was a bigger than usual arrow, so it was easier to hit. Oh, that I think that's, that's cool. The, that's the reasonable. Says, somebody else says that the arrow was already split and they just had it lightly held together. That, and that I like that's that cool. Like I'm okay with that. theories about this. That's, I love that stuff. I'm okay with both those things. That's yeah. how. I, you know, I, I don't. I don't want to ever see the movie version where the uh, he shoots the arrow and then it's the POV of the arrow, which is going in. Which is the Kevin Costner. I know, yeah. but like, but then like, but then we take it even further and go POV all the way through, and then it goes out the other side, and we we travel through it all because it's CGI, and then the arrow just keeps flying. Oh, I hate yeah, that shit. Yeah. Between this that's and no Robin fun. Hood Men in Tights, now I'm at least, at least with- Costner was like practical POV. Yeah, they weren't. It wasn't pixels, was it? Really? 
1996, right? Yeah. But it, they had to have used. Some I think kinda... they. I think it was rear projection on. A... Oh, oh, sure. Oh, that. Yeah, it must have been. Yeah, yeah that's that's true. That's true. I was gonna say that this movie has me wondering why, like, we couldn't make Carrie Elway's a movie star. Like, are we just in a different version of of yeah. male machoness? Because like he did not. Just I think that's what it is. Bride, but I think he did Robin Hood Men in Tights. But I think it's. Exa- I think that's exactly what it is. I think if he does Robin Hood, <laughs> the problem is doing Robin Hood Men in Tights. Automatically, he's parodying the thing that makes him like that. I don't right. think it's a particularly great career move to come out and parody the thing that you are immediately. Yeah, but when you're born looking like Carrie Elways, I mean, like you were born to play that role. <laughs> Plus, I don't think it was immediately. I think he had a few misses in between. He had already uh, And it was like, oh, well, I, <laughs> I better capitalize on <laughs> Well, yeah, it's like, well, they're used to me this way. Um, you know. I think I like Carrie Elways a lot. I do too. Uh, uh, he's no Errol Flynn. I mean, doesn't there is no Errol Flynn. That's the thing. I mean, like this I, is you like, know. you know, this is an iconic individual that has never been replicated. Yeah. Who is and, – and, and I, I know you guys want to probably want to wrap up. But I think he's actually underrated as an actor. Like he's certainly not a, a, a – he's not a Brando. He's not a versatile actor. He sort of did his thing. But he's – he throws this stuff away. He's very – he's he's very – you know, I think people think of this movie and they've seen like a clip of one of the bits where he's going, ha-ha. But that's not the majority of the performance. Right. The majority of the performance is actually very subtle and very grounded. And and he's really terrific as an actor in a lot of other movies that aren't, are not – well known. There's the Dawn Patrol, which is a wonderful movie about uh, World War One pilots. Uh, there's Gentleman Jim, uh, boxing film. Yeah. And he's actually a really underrated uh, actor. Yeah, I mean, I think Betty Davis, who worked with him right after this, was like furious she had to work with Errol yeah. Flynn. She's like, oh, why? Why? I, I think they boned too, right? But she yeah, they like, probably they, they definitely boned. But sure she was just did. like, oh, I have to bone this dumb actor. Gonna, like, ruin my movie. <laughs> and then afterwards, she was like, you know what? He's pretty good at everything. Yeah, I will say Errol Flynn has the curse uh, of the guy who makes it look easy. Mm. And when you make it look easy, everybody assumes that it was, in fact, easy. Absolutely. And I think that's the thing. I mean, that's one of my favorite things to watch in a film is a guy who makes it look easy. But also I like to keep in mind that it is, in fact, probably very hard to get up there and make it look easy because anybody who's ever stood in front of a camera, I think, understands that it is a lot harder to get that shit across than it potentially seems. Yeah. Um, so, Brian, you also vote yes for the candidate since you nominated the film. I'm on the fence. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, absolutely. I, I, the stakes have never been higher, listeners. Please don't reject my favorite movie. <laughs> uh, uh, if, uh, if, if you guys vote yes, uh, Brian will come to your home and tell you whether or not Jon Snow is dead. I believe it's ah, uh, well, I mean, he's dead. <laughs> he's so dead. He's dead. Uh, okay. Uh, so it's up to you guys now. Please go to the forums at Earwolf. We have our own forum, the Canon. There will be a uh, a poll and a, uh, a thread there for you guys to vote and to uh, make your opinions heard. Please do so. Um, if you have not watched this movie, please do. It is terrific. You're going to have a really yeah. good time watching it. You won't be sorry. And if you have kids, watch with them. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, Brian, thank you very much for joining oh. us. Game of Thrones is on April 25th. Yes, uh, season six of Game of Thrones uh, premieres. April 24th, 24th. On, on HBO and um, I'm very excited to, to have everyone uh, experience it. It was a big one. It was a big one for us. This is the exciting one for everybody because nobody knows what's happening now. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even, I haven't seen all the final edits. I don't even know what's going on. Um, uh, thank you so much for having me there, yeah, you guys. This was coming. such really a treat it. and such an honor. It's my favorite, uh, my favorite podcast and, and I just love it. Thank you so well, much. Thank you. Oh, we're happy to have you. I, I have to ask one last question and I oh, feel yeah. almost ironic asking this, but you know, asking this to to the Game of Thrones guy, but do you think there's a chance that movies could move in this more lighthearted, hopeful way? I don't know. I hope so. I mean, I I I think there's still some of it there. I think movies like the Fast you and know. Furious movies, which are huge, are essentially lighthearted. I mean, they're not well, they're not like dark. And look at you know, I mean, the success of uh, of, of Force Awakens. I mean, there's a lot you can say about it, right. but but. 
it has, for the most part, that real kind of lightness of tone. And and the Ray character, uh, the Daisy Ridley character, is a true hero in the classic sense that you don't really see as much right. anymore. You, there's this uh, desire to edge up or angst up our heroes. Right. And I loved how kind of – and I use this word as a compliment, how traditional a hero she right. was in the, in the movie. See, I think the thing is the Marvel movies, the Fast and the Furious and Star Wars all mm. are very popular because all the characters like each other. And yeah. I think it's yeah. the same thing that happens here. These characters, the merry men, like hanging out. And we like watching movies where the characters enjoy hanging out together because yeah. we're hanging out with them. So even though you don't like maybe like, don't like the Fast and Furious films, they're not dark and all those characters get along. It's about the idea of family. The Marvel movies, why the Civil War is like interesting is because these guys get along. Why aren't they getting along? Uh, Star Wars – all anybody can talk about is that friendship between Ray, yeah. uh, Finn, and Poe. It's all they can talk about. Yeah. And, and that was why it was such a feat that they that they pulled that off. Right. I and, mean, that, with the casting and with the, the relationships. Yeah, it's the same absolutely. thing as here. Watching these merry men hang out yeah. is like one of the main joys of this movie. Yeah. And it's characters enjoying each other's company is a, big, is a big part of what a lightness of tone I think really is. Well, maybe that should be incorporated into Game of Thrones. Well, actually, funnily enough, <clears throat> sorry, we're going long here. For, I think it kind of is. Yeah. I, 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 the show's known for being really nihilistic and dark and, and certainly is in some, in some ways, but but it's definitely a show about a family trying to, uh, either a, a family trying to get back together, which is the Starks, and then other sort of Quasi families forming in these in these uh, other. You know, I think this is areas. one of the reasons why the Arya and the Hound storyline was so popular. Absolutely, because those two characters hanging out was something we really liked yeah. watching, and they realized they liked each other. Right, they didn't they didn't want to like each other. Right, and that's we yeah. like we we like that. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much Sorry. for being here. No, this <laughs> Thanks, was great. Uh, so, uh, you guys, uh, uh, Amy, where can everybody find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me at MTV News and Twitter at the Amy Nicholson and my new podcast Skill Set. Devin, where can people find you? Find me on Twitter at Devin CF and every single goddamn day at birthmoviesdeath.com. Uh, and join us again next week. Uh, Do I get our, to say what, I, what my Twitter yeah. handle? Oh, you're just right. You're on Twitter. Yeah. Do it. I'm, I'm at uh, B underscore Cogman. Well, That's you have an it. underscore. That's why I didn't ask you. It's a very complicated thing. I know. I had to. <laughs> I had to. Long story. And join us next week when we are now finally, this time for real, we are not taking it back. We are actually doing The Lost Weekend, 1945 Raymond film about drinking. So that's next week. We'll see you then. This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Adam Sachs, and Chris Bannon. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Hey, Queeros, it's me, Cami Esposito, and I'm here to tell you about my podcast, Query. You can sit in on hour-long conversations between me, Cameron Esposito, and some of the brightest luminaries in the LGBTQ family. Query explores individual stories of identity, personality, and the shifting cultural matrix around gender, sexuality, and civil rights. Plus, it is fun. We have had some incredible guests. Uh, Emmy winner Lena Waithe? Yes, definitely. Congressman Mark Takano? You bet. L Word creator Eileen Shaken? Yes. President and CEO of Glad Sarah Kate Ellis? We definitely have. We've got celebs. People like Trixie Mattel, Evan Rachel Wood, Tegan and Sarah, the band and the people separately on two different episodes. We also have activists and change makers in our community. I think it's a one-of-a-kind show full of chats you have never heard before. It's identity, it's community, it's query. You can find query every Monday on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.